It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. This episode is brought to you by Zencaster, the amazing platform I've been using to record the audio and video versions of this show since March 2020. It is the number one tool I recommend to podcasters. So if you're thinking of starting your own show or optimizing one you already have, visit Zencaster.com. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com. It's free to try and you can enter the code WELLEVATOR to receive 30% off your first three months of the pro plan. WELLEVATOR is spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R. Well, I think we'll naturally get there when we start this conversation, but a big component of working through shame is shame resilience, which is noticing when the thoughts come up to invite you to that place of stress and handling it differently than your automatic response. And so when my the the only thoughts that I noticed when it first happened was I have a lot of scarcity thoughts around like around time, around time, money and energy, like our three resources. So I'll have this thought of oh my goodness, did we waste this time? Now what? And then you pause and then I go, and and my response in my head was, what a lovely opportunity to connect with an, another person. And does everything have to be output oriented? And as soon as I could make that shift in my brain, it all went away. And that's when I could be like, what do we need? We can move it to a different time like that. But it's a, it's simple, but not easy. And it takes a lot of practice of knowing you didn't start this interview to make my day harder. And our systems aren't trying to make lives harder. They're just doing whatever they're doing. And if we can let go of that feeling like the world is out to get me, it makes it a lot easier to let it go. It makes me want to uh, do something very creative with the show and like just start the show while we were discussing that. Yeah. So I might. Honestly, yeah, you start it wherever you want to. <laughs> this might be like one of my uh, new experiments with, with yes. surprising the audience. They're like, did I miss yeah. something? You know, when you, this actually happened the other day, I paused a TV show and came back to it like 30 minutes, an hour later. And when I unpaused it, it was in the middle of something. I'm like, oh, I must have missed something. And so I rewound a little bit and realized no, but my brain had like, just assume that there was more context, but the show didn't actually provide any. And it was kind of one of those those neat moments. So I think we should go with this and and let this all play out as a for context of what we said we wanted to talk about, which is to share the behind the scenes that are that have guided us for the past hour and a half that we've spent <laughs> troubleshooting an issue. And I really want to acknowledge you on air as I did before we started recording, which is just your your patience, Kira, and your resiliency and your troubleshoot. I mean, you've shown up in such beautiful ways that I feel like will have a ripple effect on, on me throughout the day. Because as we're going to talk about shame today and, and anxiety and fear and a lot of those emotions that come up for me, sometimes, so I've, I've noticed, so to put some context into the listener, we were scheduled for 1.30 to 3.30 today and showed up, everything was going fine. As soon as we clicked record, we were in our flow and the recording just stopped. And it is a issue that's been manifesting for the past week and a half with me and, and different facets of my 
recording, but something that I have not figured out how to fully troubleshoot yet. And typically in these moments of troubleshooting, I go, my brain goes into this like blinders on hyper focus. I got to just bear through it. And like, it's almost like that survival mode that you shared in the first recording before the issue started. And I've noticed this about my brain, the more that I become more aware about how I work is when, and this could be in really intense situations or minimally intense, like for, for this specific situation that we're in, it's not, the stakes are not that high. Right? It's like, we could reschedule. Everything's fine. Like the, you know, we're going to figure it out. And we did, we, I switched to a different microphone and uh, troubleshooted a few different things. So my audio might sound different and I might look different on camera right now than, than I have at least for the past few months, which is, they're just minimal issues and I can move forward through them. But what I'm expecting based on my patterns is that after we finish recording, there'll be that come down moment of, oh, I made it through, I survived. And then it's like, I get hit with another wave of shame or anxiety coming up later. Like, oh, I feel so bad for wasting our time. I feel bad that, you know, my microphone didn't work and like this stress will come up on me. And and I've actually, uh, as a side note and something that I've addressed on the show fairly recently, I've, I've had sleep issues most of my life in terms of sleepwalking. And there is, to me, it seems like there's my brain is operating in a state of fight or flight in ways that I'm not even fully aware of unless I'm sleeping. And last night, it was really bizarre. I, I did like kind of my sleepwalking, but it's like a panic where my brain believed that w- whatever was happening in my dream was true. And it's kind of a funny story to share out loud because I had this panicky dream of somebody was watching through my window like the neighbors could see me or something. And I remember in my dream feeling ashamed. I remember thinking, oh my gosh, they saw me change. Oh my gosh, they're watching me sleep. Like there was of course like the fear of like other people watching you, (laughs) which is scary. But I also remember the feeling of shame in that dream. And so what happens with my brain chemistry and whatever has caused my sleepwalking issues is I will actually start to act out my dream. And last night, what I did is I ran to my computer to try, like somehow my brain thought I can solve this issue on my computer. And I like found myself sleep computing. (laughs) I remember just being at my desk and like waking up and realizing, what am I doing here? Like, this isn't real. And I went back to sleep. And I bring that up because I've been trying to get to the root of my sleep issues. I recently did a sleep study. I'm like trying to get the doctors involved. But so far, the biggest clue is that I think I'm carrying around stress or anxiety or fight or flight reactions that are happening. And I wonder if I'm like pushing them so deep down that they are only coming out when I'm, I'm sleeping. Like I've, I've met, my brain has managed to cope so much. And that ties into the situation today because I wonder like, what is the ripple effect of this stressful scenario? So we can absolutely explore that. I wanted to give context. And I also just wanted to thank Kira for holding space for me, but also managing her own stress and what this might have evoked within her. So I'm kind of curious what your processing has been like during this troubleshooting issue that we've had today. I, my brain, as you were talking, is so excited to come back to and talk a little bit about maybe six or seven different themes about what you brought up to start with where my brain went. 
I think the biggest thing that it sounds like you and I share is our country, our culture really has this confusion between perfectionism and high functioning anxiety with kind of having it all together. And so we feel like we have to be perfect. We have to get everything done. Nothing can happen. Nothing can go wrong. We can't. And this is where we were talking about before my scarcity mindset is around. I never have enough time. I never got anything done. I wake up already thinking about all the things that I need to get done, thinking I didn't get enough sleep. So I'm judging myself on both sides, going to bed, telling myself I didn't get enough done and I'm not going to get enough sleep. And this is, I think, the crux of what we exist in in this world is feeling like, and this is ultimately the baseline of shame. It's feeling like we're not enough and how we show up in the world isn't enough. And if we're not perfect or constantly at this high level of functioning, our sense of connection and belonging in the world is going to be taken away from us. And so, I mean, and this has been indoctrinated in us since we were little, we develop our core beliefs about ourselves and our place in this world. When I have an almost two-year-old daughter, she's developing them right now. And this idea, and this isn't to put our parents and caregivers or anybody under the bus, because ultimately it's like 99.999% of the population has a negative core belief based on the systems and cultures we live in that tell us we're not enough, we're not worthy, we're not lovable, we're not beautiful, unless fill in the blank. So that might be if we you know, explore all the isms of the country that we live in, racism, sexism, all of these other components, it might be you know, if you're not white or if you're not a cisgender male, whatever those things are, but they're also in these small scale ways. So it could be if you don't get a certain grade, if you don't act a certain way in your household, if you don't follow certain rules and do certain things, well, all of these messages become a system for operation in the world. So basically your body says, okay, so you, you're inherently broken. You're messed up. You're flawed. You aren't actually worthy of love and connection as you are. And that triggers this big reaction, which we've come to understand is shame because we need connection. We need belonging. We need support. We need approval. We need validation in order to be okay and to function and thrive in the world. And so shame comes in and goes, oh my goodness, what? No, 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 that can't happen. That can't be the case. We need to fix this. And shame says, here's the answer. And it hands you this platter of a performance. And it says, okay, if you do this, this, and this, if you act this way, if you look this way, things are going to be fine. And so if we bring it back to the situation today, there's this certain level of logically we know that, and everybody probably, especially in this pandemic, has become grossly aware that we cannot control technology and that there are so many things that happen. But there's a part of your brain that feels responsible for all these things, even though they're not in your control, because the rule book that you have or that your shame has is you need to do these things and everything needs to go a certain way in order to be good enough and worthy. And where to come back to your question of what happens for me Because I have such a scarcity mindset around time and around whether it's, you know, I'm in my 30s and I haven't, I'm not a megastar like this 21 year old influencer that's doing these things and I need more fame and I need more success or I need more this. Or if it's, again, the day to day tasks of saying you didn't accomplish enough, whatever it might be. Well, I think our shames could have, if we had let them, played hand in hand with each other because then my brain goes, oh my goodness, we didn't use our time effectively. And now we're wasting our time and I have to get this done and this done and this done. And so, okay, 
well, all right, how are we going to handle this? And if we would have allowed for that to happen, I think both of us would be in a very different state right now. And this would be a very painful interaction between the two of us. But instead, I think what we did, which we can dive more into is we both in different ways practiced shame resiliency and vulnerability. We had some open dialogues with each other. We allowed possibility to be vulnerable about what was happening and how we felt. You know, one thing you talked to me about was your energy and really needing to make sure that you were checking in with yourself about that. You know, and me being really intentional with you about I could go past five o'clock, but I was really honest with you that I haven't seen my daughter all day and I really want to make sure I'm available by that time. So we could know those things. And then say, okay, the rest is out of our control. How do we show up and just be present together? And once we could do that and the space was built for safety, our brains could shift. So I do think you're going to get off this call and you're going to still have the stress that has affected you, even though the stressor of what we were dealing with is gone. Your body still has to move through the stress cycle. The best thing we know to do actually is movement. So getting outside, just going for a walk, getting your body going can move you through that stress cycle. That's still going to be there. But I think and I hope for both of us, because we could bring the reframe and the safety between the two of us, I don't think the shame dialogue will come as intensely because instead we can pause and say, that that sucked. That, that was not great. I really wish that didn't happen. And both of us showed up doing everything we could in our control, brought kindness and our values to the table. And ultimately, this worked out exactly as it was meant to or supposed to or whatever somebody's beliefs are around that component. And we could see the ability to be human together as a gift rather than a marker on how we're not being perfect and robotic enough to meet some standard to be okay. Wow. There. <laughs> There's so much there. And I feel so grateful, actually, that it did turn out this way. (laughs) Because I noticed how much more present I feel. And it's like a different level of comfort that we are able to get through because we went through a stressful situation together, right? Like if we think about the silver linings of tough times, and as you're saying, like what's meant to be, Certainly, we probably would have felt good about the episode that we were starting to record before all these issues happened. But I find myself showing up in a completely different way that I would not have been able to get to were it not for that experience with you. And it's also so neat because, you know, Kira and I are just meeting today. <laughs> like We have very little context. We've never talked uh, besides email and setting up the recording time today. And it's just such a magical experience to go through something again, no matter how small, but a stressful situation. I was mentioning to Kira how I've been through similar situations like this and had a whole host of of other experiences that actually felt triggering to my shame even more. And so I found that I couldn't relax. I couldn't ease into. And to your point, it's, it's such an amazing thing when two people can be present and vulnerable and share what's going on and work through it together. It's like everything that you hear about that makes a good relationship, (laughs) like the resiliency of any type of relationship, but oftentimes romantic relationships, how when people have the tools and the self-awareness, how much different a situation like this could be. And it's also interesting, as you were talking about shame in that way, for me also reflecting a lot recently on my sleep disorder that I've had most of my life. And 
trying to kind of get to the bottom of it in a world that, or at least a, a country, I should say, in the U.S., our, the medical system has not been really easy to navigate with something like this, right? I've had to try to find a lot of answers for my sleep disorder on my own. And that's brought me to a lot of kind of dead ends. But what you're just describing made me think, wow, I wonder if because I'm trying to get through life from a perfectionist standpoint, like it's possible that I've spent so much of my life trying to cope, trying to hide things and not even allow my body to go through that stress cycle. And with you saying a movement could help. And I thought to myself, you know, I have a lot to do today that I haven't gotten to. And similar to what you were describing, like the efficiency and productivity and wasting time that comes up for me too. And there's part of me that feels like it'll be so frustrating if I don't get stuff done today that I wanted to because we, quote, wasted 90 minutes troubleshooting. And I could see how if it weren't for your suggestion, maybe I would just try to like push through the rest of the day and I wouldn't acknowledge the stress. I wouldn't allow myself to go through the stress cycle. But you just saying how much movement can help is encouraging me to prioritize moving through the stress cycle before I get to the next thing. And I think that this is part of what's so relatable with so many people talking about burnout and anxiety. And those words just feel like they're coming up so much in conversations and people acknowledging finally how stressed they are. And what I've observed is that most people don't feel like they have enough time. So they're going through their entire days in survival mode. They're not allowing themselves to even complete the stress cycles or even acknowledge things that are stressful. And it's so much so, Kira, that, you know, yesterday I had to walk away from a project that I was starting with a group of people. And we had been working on this for several weeks. We were planning on, on like doing it indefinitely. And I ended up walking away because I didn't feel like the group environment and the culture that had been created would actually allow, was giving me the space to take care of my mental health. I noticed the pattern that was coming up in that work environment was everybody's got to hustle and there was no boundaries in terms of time, like conversations would run over and there'd be messages and emails and requests at all hours of the day. And I stepped away because I want to prioritize other things in my life. I want to give myself room to step back from a stressful work environment and recover before I go on to the next thing. And so I want to thank you for verbalizing it in the way that you did, because they're reminders that I'm doing my best to take care of myself, but there's even more things that I, I could do. And sometimes we need to hear it from someone else and in, in the context like that to remind us that we need to give ourselves space to move through each of the cycles of whatever's happening in our life. I think one of the things that really stands out to me is we have basically tried to condition ourselves to be logic oriented all the time. We're always in our heads. So everything is okay. This is, Then that's where the productivity piece comes from. That's where the system of the American dream comes from is production, output, getting ahead all the time. And so what we do over time is our emotions and our physical feelings get in the way of achieving those goals. And I actually was just writing one of my emails that go out to my email list. And I had been reflecting on a conversation with my mom and my mom is going to be 69 this year. And her mom, my grandma is 94 and she's been in the hospital 
or in like a respite care type facility after some issues that landed her in the hospital. And my mom's just been burning out. She is a person that gives of herself all the time. Again, a very shame-based mentality of I have to be everything for everybody else at all times in order to be worthy and lovable. And she's, and I said, well, gosh, I know this must be hard working with grandma to get her home, trying to navigate all these different pieces. There's so many components. And she's like, that's not the problem. It's how negative and mean mom's being, or my grandma in this case. And so we got into this whole discussion and we were talking about this also off air before we started recording about the benefits and the cons of being a therapist in the sense that I always can bring the skills, but I also always bring the skills into the room. And so, of course, my therapy hat comes on and we have this long discussion. And one of the things we started talking about is how I think past generations and just kind of, again, thinking about culture laying the foundation for our internalized belief systems has confused stoicism and repression. And this idea that to be strong, we don't show emotions. But again, what that's doing is trying to make us logic-oriented, cognitive beings, rather than understanding that as human beings, we're actually feelings-oriented. So our fear brain goes off of those the feelings and the systems, and our physical body is constantly signals and systems. But we repress all of that and try to create a system up here in our brains that we stick with. And I think there's a really great book called The Mind-Body Prescription that talks a lot about this in different contexts. It talks about chronic pain. And again, people with chronic pain and chronic illnesses face, I think, similar things to what you're describing in the medical community of, I think, sometimes maybe feeling written off because things will be said like it's all in your head or whatever it might be. And the reality is it might be, and it's equally valid and important. And so, but it comes off as dismissive because again, everything that's up here, it's like, well, get over that figure it out, move on. It's like, you know, grab a couple more beach balls, stuff them beneath the surface, everything is fine. But instead it's saying, no, your brain is an incredibly complex system that we still don't even understand maybe five or 10% of what it does. But we know it's powerful enough that when we don't integrate our full self into understanding, you know, what we're feeling, what we're doing, how we're showing up in the world, it's pretty savvy and it's going to show up and it's going to give us the signals in another way. For some people, that's chronic back pain that slaps them in the face every day. For you, that's these episodes that are probably really uncomfortable, confusing, and maybe sometimes scary when they happen, but your body's telling you something. There's something happening. It's trying to integrate something. It's trying to make sense of something. It sounds very similar to what the brain does after it experiences trauma, and it's trying to figure out a way to integrate this very horrific experience into the tapestry of the rest of your life. And so all of this just comes back to think about, again, systems of operation where we're all coming into a space performing. And there's something that Brene Brown talks a lot about in, in several of her books, but in particular, I remember it in The Gifts of Imperfection, where she talks about the difference between fitting in and belonging. So fitting in is really what, what we're describing when we talk about you know, the stress that comes up when we're not dealing with something effectively, all the time stuff that happened today, all that, because we haven't adhered to the rules. We've screwed up in some way. So we don't fit into the picture. It's the same reason why probably every single person listening to this right now at some point in time wore something or listened to something or did something they thought was ridiculous just to fit in. 
like pr- me pretending to love country music and wearing Abercrombie shirts that I thought were ridiculously uncomfortable, overpriced and cheap. And I did it all the time because I just wanted to fit in when I constantly had this belief that I wouldn't versus trusting in belonging. And that's what I think got created between you and I when we could let go of any performances. And I didn't feel that need to fit in with you necessarily coming in that we had had, you know, about 30 minutes of really good discussion. I felt really safe and connected. But we have to be honest to say there's still a degree of performance that comes into that. I want to meet your expectations as a guest. You want to meet my expectations as a host. We want to have this really great interaction. So there's still a degree of that happening. But by being in this, you know, traumatic in a very little T sense, not trauma in a big T sense, but this, you know, semi-traumatic experience of everything kind of going down and our anxious brains, our fear brains reacting and feeling this way, it took all that off the table because we could both still see that the other person wanted to connect. So we realized we didn't have to try to perform to be okay. And that's the shift in the system that now allows you to recognize the stress and deal with the stress rather than ruminate later on the interaction. Wow. I just love the way you articulate all of that. And it's like it's like a therapeutic session just to hear all this from you. And I noticed from the very moment that I met you that you were a skilled therapist. And I, you know, without even doing a session, but I could just tell the way that you speak and hold space. And it's just a beautiful thing to witness and a gift. And, you know, it's interesting because I really want to talk about boundaries with you today and that idea of fitting in, again, for the context of one of my more recent situations with leaving this group. I mean, that really came up for me because I could tell that I didn't fit in from the very beginning. And I was, I've learned to be okay with not fitting in. I've learned to recognize the differences in my personality and my preferences, choices, the way my brain works. You know, I've noticed that my whole life. And I I think it took a lot of acceptance as an adult to try not to overly perform and to allow myself to just be. And, And I was able to put that into practice with this work group environment that I was in. But it got to the point where I didn't feel like they were respecting my boundaries. And there was part of it where it was my own accountability because I noticed patterns and that I would try to let other people know what my boundaries were, but like a little of that, I'm going to do it with confidence, but I'm also going to try to like say it and give them room to overstep my boundary. And they did. And I found myself over and over going, okay, how do I remind them of my boundary, but without feeling ashamed? Because my experience, and I think one of the reasons I've struggled my whole life with boundaries is I associate boundaries with shame. And I have a fear of something that's happened many times throughout my life of when I state my boundaries, I've had countless times people say like almost a gaslight type of reaction or they overstep them anyways. And then the self is traumatic, right? And it's conditioned me to be afraid to state my boundaries because I don't like the way I feel when someone says something, it does trigger my shame or embarrassment or guilt, and it's made it very hard. And so yesterday when I stepped away from the group, I remember there was like the before and after there was, okay, I'm going to take my time making this decision. I made my decision to leave the group and walk away from the project. I spent all this time crafting how I was going to do it. You know, again, the perfectionism, like wanting to use the right words, and wanting to be kind and not burn bridges. And I was like, I'm just going to make this go smoothly. And I 
felt like in the process of doing that, that I didn't have a lot of expectations. I felt like I'm going to be satisfied with the way that I left this. But then it turned out I did have an expectation because after I left the group, I was very disappointed with how the group reacted. And the way that they reacted, I interpreted as, oh, they don't like me. Oh, I've never fit in this group. Oh, they didn't want me here anyways. They're probably relieved that I left. And it was like, I could feel the shame and it was so heavy. And this is you know, something that I was so uncomfortable feeling and I just wanted to run away from it. I wanted to like do whatever I could to move past those emotions. I wanted to skip over that stress cycle and that shame spiral. And my brain was like moving forward, like, okay, I'm feeling shame right now. How do I get through this really quickly so I can get the shame over with? And it was such an interesting thing because it does just doesn't work that way. Like I felt like I had to just sit in it and let myself feel the discomfort of that environment while also reflecting on why I was feeling that way and not even to problem solve because it's not like I could go back in time just like we couldn't go back in time today to not have to deal with the troubleshooting. It's like, okay, something happened. It triggered me. Then what? And I guess this is the question for you. It's like, okay, if you can't go back in time and fix something and if you probably aren't going to be in that situation again to like plan not to have that happen. You know what I mean? Like, it's not you can problem solve for something that may never happen again for you because you can't fix it in the past either. So I guess what are some tools that come up for you for people that struggle with that whole process that I just shared? I can't be alone in it. I'm I'm imagining. No. (laughs) (laughs) No. And so I think one of the things that uh, there's a few things that you talked about that I think are key to point out. So the first is that shame is an emotion. So I know we had talked about this probably in the first recording. I don't remember now at this point, but at some point, either I'm repeating this or this is new to everybody hearing it now. Shame is a very specific form of fear. And so no matter what you do, you're programmed to feel fear. There's benefits for our fear response when it happens. Shame is this universal emotion that we're all going to feel. So there's no getting to a point where you never feel it again. We're like, gosh, I'm great. I'm good. Nothing's ever going to happen. I can trust that even if I screw up, the world is going to be okay. We're never going to have that fully. So I think kind of step one in the phase of working through this is the radical acceptance that you're going to experience shame in your life. And kind of what we talked about in the moment of our interactions, the decision and the, the emphasis on shame resilience is not getting to a point where I never feel the shame again. It's being able to respond rather than react to it when I'm triggered by it. When you talked about this this interaction with these people, I think a couple things happened that are key to point out. So one, when you're describing this really intentional way of trying to go about how you leave this group, how you plan your exit, how you deliver it, you're doing something that's to some degree kind of consistent with what we call asker versus guesser mentality. So if anybody ever had that friend or maybe you were that friend when you were in maybe middle school, elementary school, where they would just ask to come over. I had this kid that lived across the street from me that would always be like, can I hang out? Can I come over? Can I sleep over? I'm like, what are you doing? No, like context clues. I didn't invite you. Why are you doing this? That's an asker. An asker is somebody that believes I have the right to ask for or assert my needs, put anything out there. The other person has a right to respond. A guesser is doing kind of what you are doing in this interaction. You're trying to anticipate everything that could possibly happen in response to what you're doing and then crafting how you approach it based on all of these thoughts, these interpretations, these possibilities, 
you're expending a lot of energy into the pre-phase of doing whatever you're going to do. When in reality, most of that is out of your control. What that does when you're overemphasizing that is it conditions your brain to see the reaction of the boundary, or in this case, the exit, as more important than the boundary itself. So then it's not just, why am I setting this boundary? What are my values? How does making this decision align with my values? Does this feel right to me? And again, you can think about how to show up and be kind or how to be grateful for the opportunity or whatever it might be without assuming responsibility to make it easier for them or dealing with the responsibility of trying to make things okay for them. So then when the reaction was whatever it was, your brain automatically codes that interaction as a failure. Now you're ruminating on all of these possible conclusions that they might have about you. Well, Our fear brain is an all or nothing response system. So it's not, we can't live in the gray. Again, logically, we can sit here right now and talk about however many people were in this group. I don't know the statistics, but there's, you know, a billion plus people on the planet. Statistically speaking, it's a very low population of people on the earth that may or may not have this thought about you. You're probably going to be okay, even if they did think all the horrible things. But that's logic brained. Even logic brained to say, They might feel disappointed or upset or have a judgment about me for what I did. That might not mean that they don't like me as a person or, again, all sorts of other conclusions. Those are logic oriented. Your fear brain only knows yes or no, right or wrong, good or bad, safe or unsafe. So because there's the possibility that it could be bad, your brain overinflates it as bad. So now it becomes this big thing that you're carrying with you. This happened to me about two or three days before the new year. It was either the 26th or 28th of December. I can't specifically remember, but it was very recent where I went on Etsy to go and I sell some of my handouts on Etsy. And this was just, I did it honestly as an experiment last year. I was like, you know what? We have wait lists of over 100 people to get in the therapy office with us. I have coaching client wait list. I have people doing all these other things. We need more resources out there. So what can I do? So this was just one platform through which I was trying to share more resources. I had said from the beginning, it was very low stakes, you know, not a big deal. But again, logic oriented, I can say that shame brain oriented, but I wanted the five star reviews. I wanted it to be perfect. I wanted everything to be amazing. Well, I went on and ironically enough, since we're talking about boundaries, it was on a worksheet that I made about five ways to say no without being a jerk, I got a bad review. I got a one-star review from this person. And it was so mean in ways like, and I, I still don't know if that's a bit of my reactivity or not, but I remember looking at it and I timed it because again, I have a little bit of more awareness having worked on this for years now in my own brain. I could feel my shame coming on and I noted the clock and I watched how long it took me. And in 14 minutes time, I was ready to shut down my entire business. I was Googling the legal ramifications of backing out of some of the contracts that I had signed for 2022 because I had, and I was ready to leave therapy. I was ready to stop everything. I'm like, you're a terrible therapist. You are a hoax. I don't know why anybody has ever worked with you. Clearly this one person who doesn't even know you in real time, I don't even know who they are. They must know you better than you know yourself. Because what they're doing is they're reflecting those innermost fears that we have. So somebody doing it, again, realm of possibility that everybody thinks that I'm the worst therapist on the planet and shouldn't be practicing, pretty low. Logic brain oriented, knowing that, okay, you got a one-star review. It's also just an Etsy shop. Like it's, it's not life or death. I can say all that here. But again, in 14 minutes time, I was ready to shut my whole business down. And I was 
I was sobbing. I was that activation before bed. I have a very different kind of issue with my sleep. I've had some trauma in my past and my brain processes any of my anxiety in a very similar way. So I'll kind of get so keyed up that everything, I will wake up hearing sounds that haven't actually happened. So I could feel all this coming on and I had to stop and go, ooh, all right. And I mean, I went to, I was in the Etsy shop. I was going to close that down. I was looking at, again, how do I shut down a business in Oregon? How do I back out of my therapy patient? Like everything I need to do. And I had to pause in this moment and go, you have to do something to move through this cycle. If I don't do something right now, I'm going to be up all night trying to, I mean, imploding my business was essentially what I was going to do. And for what purpose and, and point? And so the other thing in those moments, and this again, kind of tying back to what happened for you is when we get to that stage, we get very reactive. So there are three ways of reacting when we feel shame and we get to that heightened state of agitation. So kind of think about like, on a cellular level, your cells all coming up here and they're just kind of reverberating at this really high level. Well, these three systems, the first is to move towards, which basically means how do I people please? How do I make myself of service to everybody else? Well, I think you and I share that a little bit in the sense of our daily lives and interaction of how our shame maybe forces us to operate. We allow the boundary erosion or we give ourselves more freely to people, which is why it sounds like in a very similar journey, you've wanted to work on how do I set and affirm my boundaries to myself and with other people. The second response is the moving away. That's the, I just want to shut down. I'm going to, you know, close everything out. I'm going to go hide in my closet. In my instance, it was, I'm going to, you know, shut down my whole business and just go no show on everything that I was supposed to do moving forward. And then there's the third response, which is moving against. And that's when somebody tries to fight shame and anger with shame and anger, which was, in that 14-minute period, part of where I did go, so I had several responses queued up of what I was going to say to this person that, again, I don't know them. I don't know the context of their experience. It's also they have every right to feel how they feel about something that I created. That's theirs. But that place is basically or the goal of these three different responses is how do I get away from feeling the shame as quickly as possible? That's what you're describing. I call them now Band-Aid solutions. It's how do I feel... You don't even feel better. You just, you've moved into a different location. Like you're just jumping from spot to spot and you keep finding new shame and you hop again. Or like a like an inner tube that's slowly leaking and you just keep putting Band-Aids on it. But it's like the crappy dollar store Band-Aids that don't even hold up when you're putting them on there. So the leaks just keep coming out over and over. And so I think for all of us to kind of think about in the context of when we experience shame, again, coming back to this place of, we're going to feel it. But what's helpful is to shift rather than from a place of avoiding it or fixing it right away, because it's ultimately just responding to shame with more shame is saying, how do I slow down to not overinflate this feeling that it's a bigger deal in the context of my life overall than I want or need it to be? So again, I had a choice with this review. Is the review the thing that takes my whole business down? Or is the review an opportunity for me to think about how I take feedback and maybe where I need to ask for feedback from people in different ways? Or thinking about ways for me to process how I engage with other people? And again, all these other factors. Or again, on the third step, is one person's view of me, even if it's shown publicly, 
really that big of a deal in the context of how I can frame my life and how I show up overall. Thank you so much for sharing that. It It is like that comforting feeling within me of, oh, I'm not the only one that experiences this. <laughs> because as I said, I, you know, I don't even have to do a, a therapy session with you just to see you as somebody who's likely a very good therapist. And so it, it feels silly when I hear this. I'm like, wow, how could she feel that way? Like she's got these tools and she's really talented and skilled and, you know, but it's that humanity within each of us. Before March 2020, every guest on this show recorded with me in person because I wanted to ensure the highest quality sound possible. But this took extra time and effort to produce. Plus, it limited me to people who were visiting or living in Los Angeles. When I switched to Zencaster, I realized how much easier remote recording was for me and my guests. Now everyone can easily record studio quality sound from the comfort of their own homes. If you want to try it out, visit Zencaster.com and enter the code WELLEVATOR to receive 30% off your first three months of the pro plan, which is what I use. I can't wait to hear your show, so send it over to me as soon as it's live. And the, that even when we do have the tools and the resources, the knowledge, the awareness, like it still comes up. And that actually leads me to a question based on probably a little bit of the scenario I already told you, but another one recently that's kind of reminds me of your Etsy experience. I started doing a daily live stream and today would be my 10th day. I'm still committed to doing it. And that's because I, I said I would do it daily, right? And so it's been the challenge of, all right, showing up for something, even when I'm tired, even when I'm low energy, like just doing enough to keep my commitment. But also this specific live stream, because of the trouble that we've had today, I've had similar issues with it. And every single day I've done my live stream, something has gone wrong. And it's been a really interesting experience because I think to an extent with me being a people pleaser and, and generally a perfectionist. Like it's really hard for me when things don't go wrong, but I often get to a point of letting it go. And you know how you can be your own worst critic, but when somebody else comes around and says the things, as you mentioned, that are your own fears, it's like, oh, this must be real. Well, because of my tech issues, I've had a few people reach out to me and complain about some of the things that have happened. And I just found myself feeling so frustrated and thinking, should I just give up and not do this? Like, it feels like no matter how hard I try, there's something's going wrong. I'm super embarrassed, you know, like I want it to go smoothly. I don't want anyone to see me not perfect. I'm afraid of people looking down on me. I'm afraid of people thinking I'm obnoxious. I mean, the amount of emotions that have come up for me just doing this live stream that I started off feeling really excited about and proud of kind of I imagine with your Etsy, when you made it, you probably felt really good and confident about it. And obviously enough for you to list it. And but maybe deep down there was part of you that like didn't fully feel that way. So as soon as you got that review, it revealed it. But then perhaps similar to my situation, I'm thinking, okay, the only way that I can avoid feeling the shame that I just felt is to stop, right? Like I'm just going to give up on the live streams. But there was still this voice inside me that said, no, you have to keep going. So my next question to follow up on your scenario and mine is how do you keep going? <laughs> you know, because, and I guess it's a complicated question that I'm trying to figure out how to verbalize. For my situation, 
I want to keep going, but I'm feeling insecure about it. And I'm afraid I'm going to show up and people are going to see my insecurity. And I'm afraid that they're going to, it's not going to be as good. And even though I'll keep going, I'm, there's part of me that's like, am I a glutton for punishment? Am I just asking for criticism? Can I handle all this criticism? Is it worth the criticism? And that's something I've had to ask over and over again with everything I've put out with my work. And somehow I've kept going with it, but there have been a number of projects that I've given up on. So I'm curious for you, how have you navigated? Like, how did you get through that situation to keep going and not give up on your practice? And what other tools in general have you found useful for others in moving forward when something's extremely dis- extremely uncomfortable, but there's still a little part of them that wants to do it despite the discomfort? I think you're pointing out some really key things, which is any time that we're doing anything that's unpredictable or that's, yes, right, that's unpredictable. So it's outside of the scope of what's predictable. And I often think about it as kind of the predictably stagnant or the predictably crappy. And so, you know, for many people listening, they're going to have things that they do every day and they go, gosh, I, I don't want to go to this job anymore, or I'm, I'm not feeling fulfilled in this relationship. Or again, we're talking about maybe this live stream or the Etsy shop. There can be things where we don't feel fulfilled, but we keep doing them and or things that we do them and they take us so far out of that spectrum of just fine. They light us up in a different way that as soon as something happens that feels like a threat to it, then we want to kind of go back to our state of fine. You could be fine if you didn't do this live stream for the rest of your life. Like the world would go on. You would be okay. There's a part of you that wants to do it. So there's a different connection and buy-in with it, which means the threat's bigger. And so I think that there's something about kind of understanding for us how the ego works. So I compare a lot of things now to toddlers because I have an almost two-year-old. And so really thinking about for her, failure is the best thing that I can promote for her development, but also in terms of modeling is to just constantly try things that fail and that flop. Well, that gets conditioned out of us as we're older. You know, you have to get the straight A's, you have to go to a certain school, you have to, there's a very specific conveyor belt that everybody is funneled to based on their different intersecting identities and the culture that they exist in. Well, as the scope of possibility goes down, the tunnel or the the opportunity for failure or exploration or just flailing a little bit goes away. So in reality, I still think the worksheet that I put up was great. What I've learned is the way that I marketed a few things about the worksheet, not so great. Awesome learning opportunity for me. But instead, because things have gotten so focused, and I remember as a kid and kind of an emerging adult, my response to a lot of trauma that I went through was to be, I actually, so my mom struggled with some pretty severe substance use issues and What we didn't find out until many years later was undiagnosed bipolar disorder. In the midst of her struggling with some substance use issues, she spent a significant amount of time in jail and in treatment centers. And so I moved in with different family members. And I definitely became kind of a chameleon in that of how do I, one household, my nickname was Cinderella for a while because I was always picking up after everybody else. I was doing certain things. Well, what happens is whether somebody has trauma or not, the circumstances that lead us to say, okay, when you act or do or you are this way, things are better and more convenient for everyone else. They become the pillar through which we assume everything we do has to be built off of. So I got to the point where everyone would say, gosh, you have it all together. You're doing all these things. I don't know how you do this. Everything you do is successful. 
that builds into the shame narrative. Because what's happening is it's at my core, I still believe I'm crap. I still believe that I am broken. I'm flawed. I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. I've just perfected the performance so no one can see. So then when something happens, when he left the review, when you got that feedback about the live streams, what happens is you go, oh my gosh, they see it. So now it's like if I told you, you know, five times you have an itch on your nose, eventually you're going to start to itch your nose because now it's just becoming this thing that you fixate on. And so I think part of this is then if we go back to kind of the toddler brain and the ego is realizing that our ego is best friends with our shame and its goal It's not, you know, people talk about being egocentric, things like that. That's not what we're talking about. Your ego is this base part of you that wants to make sure that you are seen and heard because you need to be, because again, you need connection, you need belonging. So the ego starts to write the story that you have to be the hero and you're the victim and the villain in every story. So you're responsible for getting everything right, doing everything for everybody. But as soon as something goes wrong on any platform, you're the problem. So even thinking about the interaction with the people where you left the group, the only scenario that you're sitting there perseverating on is something bad about you. You're letting them down. They're thinking this about you rather than saying, how that tells me a lot about their character if they're upset with me about making a choice that's best for me in my life. And then the victim, meaning that we also will get to the point where it's like, gosh, the whole world is happening against me and is, you know, this, this and this. And that mentality starts to happen when we get stuck there. So then it's, why do I even bother? Why do I even try? Should I even keep going? Which is a little bit of what would start happening with you, I would assume, with the tech issues. So it's this, I have to be perfect. I can't have anything wrong. I got to be able to fix it. Great. Now I'm, I'm, we'll go even just between you and I. I'm stealing her time away from her. I'm doing this and that. But then also thinking, gosh, this just keeps happening to me. Why is this happening? Well, that web, those three roles are what drain us. So part of moving out of this is to start to recognize when that's happening And to realize when we're overinflating ourselves, not only just in our stories, but in everybody else's story. So instead, you're in this case of the live streams. Okay, so there's a couple people that are disappointed. Even if we go back to the review, the review actually wasn't even about the content. It was about a couple of things that were in there. There was a typo and one other thing. That person made a choice not to get out of it what was intended for them to get out of it. They made a choice to make it about how I screwed up, not about trying to find out what they could learn. That person offering you feedback, there's a difference in saying, hey, we've been having some tech issues lately. Wanted to let you know if, you know, if you're not sure what it's like on the user end or the viewer end or, you know, whatever. There's a way to provide feedback that's constructive. And then there's a way to provide feedback that's just about making them feel better that ultimately, if we really boil down to it, is their shame getting manifested and reaching out to you. And I don't say that to be mean to them because, again, I was ready to send this terrible response to this reviewer. We're all guilty of acting from our shame. But then you have to come back and say, what's my intention here? When you started out doing these live streams, did you start out to get 10,000 million bajillion views, you know, or did you just want to be the most famous person on the planet? Did you want to get famous off of these things? Or did you do it because it felt like it was a platform and a way for you to connect and to share information and support in the world? And what we have to be mindful of is come back to your intention and root it to your values because your ego is only driven by external validation. External validation do not line up with our values. So instead, for me, the shift was going, I started out wanting to do these things 
to be the best support I can be to the people that I can serve. And I know I'm not the best fit for everybody. And maybe that means places like Etsy aren't the right fit for me, where everything is based off of a review and trying to be best and better than all the competition. And we are a culture that's been driven off of only buying from a five-star review rather than pausing and learning about that person or that business or the context of a review. Okay, so maybe that's feedback. But my intention was just to show up with humility and a willingness to keep growing and be better and to provide resources and support for other people. Am I doing that? Yes. So how do I stick with and show up and do that rather than allowing my ego to overinflate my role over here and then ultimately take me away from living my best life and having a maximum impact in the world around me? This is just phenomenal advice and I'm just savoring it. (laughs) I'm like, I can't wait to listen back to this and at least one more time. I feel like I could come back to this anytime I face these issues, which is frequently. And actually leads me to a follow-up question that I'm constantly ruminating on. And I don't know if there's an answer, but I'm curious what maybe just a perspective you could offer on this, Kira, is why do people write such critical things? I mean, you touched upon like it's their shame. And I actually made an episode on this as part of my own way of processing. Recently, I was sharing about one of those comments and, and how it really triggered me. And I was part of my reaction was, if only I could just understand why they wrote that, then maybe I can move through this. Like the why is often a really important piece of context I need when I'm processing or crave because I don't always get it. And most of these people, you could ask them like, why did you write that? And they might not give you an answer. They may never respond. You may never hear from them again, or they'll respond in defensiveness or they might not get to the root of it. And so I'm constantly left with that question of like, well, why did that woman feel the need to point out minimal mistakes to your point. Like, why is it that some people miss the point? You know, what you're bringing up about my live streams, absolutely. I'm showing up in hopes that people will say, well, they're not expecting me to be perfect. And they know that tech issues happen. You know, why why would somebody be so frustrated and disappointed that I had a tech issue? Why would this woman be so upset and disappointed that you mess up grammar or punctuation. You know, we I see it all the time in other people. And I, I can't imagine pointing that out. I might think it to myself, but I'm just certainly not a person that would write that as a review. I would give, you know, take it so out of context when other people are likely not buying your PDF on Etsy with the assumption that your grandma's grammar is perfect. They're buying it to get the result of what you're promising that and maybe hopefully ignoring it. And it just perplexes me that other people not only hyper fixate on somebody else's mistakes and imperfections, but they feel the need to say them in such critical, rude, sometimes bullying ways, trolling ways to point out other people's flaws publicly and not even realize how detrimental that can be. I mean, you sharing that story about you wanting to quit your whole practice, I can't even tell you how many people I know that have gone through their own version of that. You know, they are a cookbook author and they get awful reviews. They never want to write a cookbook again because of Amazon. They, I've gone through that myself with platforms like YouTube where the criticisms and the misunderstandings became so much. I turned off the comments and I barely post on YouTube. It was just too heavy. It was too much to bear. I lost sight of my core reasons. And to exactly your point of my ego was just you know, unable. It was like, it got so in my way. And 
that's been part of my journey is to do exactly what you advise. But I do want to go back to this question of why do you think other people get so irritated by other people's mistakes that they have to point them out in such unkind ways? I think that there is, there's a couple things, at least from what I've observed in the world. Again, if we go back to shame and the way that we respond to shame, a lot of times what we're looking for, again, is to kind of reestablish equilibrium or recalibrate equilibrium to make sure our space is still secure. So when somebody is, and my my mom and I were having this conversation going back to the dynamic with her and my grandma, there were a few interactions where I said, okay, well, did you tell her this? And then my mom told me what she said. And I was like, oh, that seems pretty mean. I don't know if we needed to go about it that way. And part of the discussion we had was she made you feel bad about yourself. And rather than being able to stop and say, that's not okay, you can still validate her emotions, you can validate her experience in the world and that this is hard for her and that what she's going through is difficult. You can also still put a boundary on or tell her that a certain behavior is not okay. Rather than doing that, you instead fought back with fear for two reasons or with anger for two reasons. One, and this kind of goes back to your question about the boundary setting too, of really believing that she didn't have the right to set a boundary in the first place and that she's ultimately deserving of being treated poorly. So if you are conditioned to, you know, being in these, this environment or this narrative, whether it's an external situation, you know, environments that we can be in that push us to believe this or the internal narrative that we've existed in for so long or some mixture of both, everything's going to be believed through that lens. So clearly, then she's not deserving of being treated better than that. And she doesn't know what to do, but she is feeling reactive. So eventually she's going to snap in some way and then she's mean. So that's part of what happens with the reviews is, you know, again, I have no idea about the context of what was going on for this person when they got the handout. But on a typical day, I read blog posts all the time. I get emails from people like really famous. Actually, this just happened with Mel Robbins the other day where I get her emails. She sent out an email and then sent out another email like 10 minutes later saying, did you catch my mistake? Apparently the first name filler thing that's supposed to populate your first name didn't do it. So a bunch of people's emails just said, hi, first name with a bunch of weird symbols. So she's immediately writing back to like try to make it okay for everybody. I saw it and moved on because it doesn't matter. It didn't affect my day if it said, hey, first name, or if it said, hey, Kira, the message in the copy was something below it. And on our best days, that's what we're going to do. Even on most neutral days, things are going to be relatively crappy or, you know, not how we'd expect them to be. And we'll go, ah, it's fine. You know, your cup of coffee you order isn't exactly what you wanted. You let it go. But then there's going to be a day that it happens and you're just not able to handle it. It's not that the coffee was what set you off. It's that you've been, again, go back to that state of repression. You've been repressing your feelings for so long that the coffee ends up becoming the thing that just bops the ball right back up from underneath the surface. So I think what it is, to think about there is when that person's sending you that review, they're scanning for ways to do this, not because they're intentionally trying to be malicious and they're still being hurtful and harmful because they haven't yet figured out how to deal with their own distress, their own shame, their own whatever it might be, that this is the only way they know to process it. So we think about, you know, bullies and middle school bullies and people thinking back to that and everyone's like, oh, they're just being a bully because they have a hard time. That is quite literally the reason why people bully, whether it's trauma or something else that's happened in their brain. 
they don't have the capacity or the tools to know how to deal with it. So this shame response becomes the only way that they know how. So they become destructive. Like my two-year-old, who when she feels like she's in trouble, when I'll say, did we just do that? Even with a smile on my face, even with like open arms to hug her, she will immediately shut down if she worries that she is somehow in trouble because it's an innate response in us because we just we have this built-in thing of needing to act and be a certain way. And again, that threat component within there. And so if people aren't taught, which many of us weren't, systems and how to respond it. I mean, think about this. You and I are both in very similar journeys of learning how to set boundaries, how to deal with this criticism, how to keep going in ways that don't shut us down. We weren't taught how to do this when we were two, when we were five, when we were 10, probably because our caregivers didn't know how to do it and their caregivers didn't know how to do it. So it becomes instead, I think, a way of at least the reframe that I'm trying to think about is how can I show up with kindness when that's the harder choice? And I I think the last plugs, and I've brought up a lot of books in here, but the last big plug I want to make is to the show Ted Lasso, which if people haven't watched it, I don't know if you can watch it without getting Apple TV, if you can do a trial of Apple TV, do what you can do within the means that you have to watch the show if you can. It is just a life lesson in kindness. And there's this one interaction that happened in season two. So there's two seasons of the show. And there's this particular interaction with Ted, the main character, Jason Sudeikis, and this other coach. And the whole season's been building where you're just getting irritated with this other coach. You just, you kind of want to punch him and just be like, what are you doing? Well, this one interaction happens that just kind of sets it off to the point. And rather than reacting, because Ted had the higher ground, it was there was nothing Ted had done that any of us could see in the context of the storyline that would warrant being treated this way. But instead of doing that, instead of saying, you know, what are you doing? That's so mean or hurtful or calling him out. He said, what do I have to learn here? And that place of humility and vulnerability to rather than let our ego be bruised and say, well, that person's saying something mean about me and that's doing this. Instead, we go, huh, what do I have to learn here? And then in this episode, we start to really think about the storyline this other coach has been existing in and why he feels the way he does about this other character. So again, in my story, this person was being really mean for no sense to me whatsoever. I wrote a public response. I sent a private message. I sent an email. I refunded the money. I have gotten nothing back from this person. So the thing is, like in my story, one, I've already let him play way too big or them play way too big of a character than they need to in my life. Two, I am presuming to understand the context of their story. So instead, I just have to go, okay, kindness and compassion would allow me to say, somebody's acting that way in the world. They're hurt. They're in pain in some way. And I'm not going to be able to make sense of it. It is still not okay that this person treated me this way. And I'm not going to allow my ego to get caught up in trying to make it okay for me. Instead, I'm going to try to show love and kindness to this other person and say, Okay, how can I wish them better? How can I, again, like Ted Lasso, what can I learn here? And then as we move forward in that, that's where the balance becomes in setting boundaries and then not taking responsibility for their reactions, but realizing that their perception is always going to be different than our intention because they're writing it into the context of the story that they're living. And unfortunately, in the world that we're all existing in right now, The context of most of our stories is ridden with the trauma of the last two years, and most people are experiencing symptoms of mental health issues they've never had before. So maybe you having this tech issue 
was the disruption to that person's day that took them over the edge that morning. And they just feel like the whole world is letting them down. It still doesn't make it okay that they maybe gave you feedback in the way they did. But if we can validate that their pain is real, then we cannot make it about us and we can let it go so much more easily because we just don't worry as much about their story and we just focus on putting kindness and compassion into our own. I am very grateful to have Zencaster as a sponsor. They have been so supportive of the show through social media and newsletter shout outs. Plus, they have truly incredible customer service. Their all-in-one podcast production platform keeps getting better and better because they take user feedback seriously. I'm especially grateful for the HD video recording features, which makes it easy to put this show on YouTube and social media. If you want to try it out, visit Zencaster.com. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com. It's free to try, and you can enter the code WELLEVATOR to receive 30% off your first three months of their pro plan, which, as I mentioned, is what I use for the show. If you have any questions about podcasting, send me a message, and I'd be happy to share more tips and tricks. Well, I want to acknowledge your kindness and compassion and the ripple effect it's had on my day. I could, could just sit here and talk to you for hours. <laughs> but part of uh, the kindness and compassion that I want to offer is to wrap up given how uh, much our, our schedules has been disrupted. And I just feel like you have demonstrated all of those lessons in so many ways for me and hopefully the listener as well. In the way that you speak with such grace and vulnerability and I truly mean, I feel like out of most of the episodes I've recorded, this is one of few that I really cannot wait to listen to again, because I'm just sitting here trying to let it all sink in and want to reflect on it over. It's like when you find a really good book, and you want to read it a second time, because you know, you're going to find even more lessons. I'm just so thrilled with everything here and deeply kind of trying to find a word beyond grateful. Because I am grateful, but I, I feel like there's a there's another way to phrase it. But I'll I'll stay with grateful for now because I feel like these are all universal lessons. Everyone may experience them in different ways, but I imagine that each person has gone through this and maybe on different sides, right? They've acted out each of us. I mean, I find myself acting out on others. You had me reflecting here. There's a review that I've been wanting to leave on this company, what that I really felt let down by. And this happened about a month ago. And I just thought like, I want, you know, I've, they've just let me down in so many ways. They felt so dismissive of me. Like maybe the only way to get through to them is to leave a public review. Maybe I need to warn other people. And that just hearing you talk about this has me stepping back and thinking, do I really need to do that? <laughs> you know, maybe they just messed up with me and maybe that has nothing to do with anybody else. And I don't need to do this in a form of, you know, getting back at people as sometimes we do. Like we look for revenge or we look for justice and we want to be ethical. But maybe the higher road is to take that Ted Lasso moment and just see where we can step back and accept it more. And maybe that's how I can pay it forward and add to more good karma and practice it because I know what it's like for people to point out my mistakes publicly. And even though their reaction may be valid, it still didn't feel good. And knowing that makes me want to rethink how I move forward, even in those times where I feel justified in my response. So thank you for pointing that out. Thank you for 
addressing my scenarios, but in a way that related back to your own and other people's. And here, I imagine that at least one listener is going to be like, how do I get more? And I'm so excited to sign up for your newsletter. Before we started recording, you shared that you're not so focused on social media, which I think is a beautiful thing and also a very relatable thing. So you've got the email letter. What else do you provide, especially given that you have a wait list and someone might not be able to jump into a one-on-one session with you? What else do you offer for those that want to dig in further and, and get more value from you? Well, I think before I answer your question, one of the things you just summarized beautifully is how do we show forgiveness in a world that is conditioned to make power about having something over someone else? whether that's a company, a person, whatever it might be. And I just, I think you articulated it in a very practical way of realizing your intention to leave that review would have been to make them feel shame and to take their power away and to feel like you got some power back. Instead of saying, what if my intention, if I did provide feedback, was about how to help them be better? And what if I took the approach in life to always seek to be better while still learning to love myself for being imperfect? And showing up in my interactions with other people to provide that same opportunity for them. And so I think you, again, brought context to that in a way that's very relatable. So I'm really excited. I am I made the shift about a year ago in terms of how I approach things in my business. So if we talk about just the willingness to fail and flail, I started my business simultaneously when I finished my master's program and knew I was going to see therapy patients, but I was also doing public speaking, doing these other things and just wanted to have a different platform to do some work. So definitely coaching is something that I provide. And I've been trying out different options to find the best way to support people. And this is an interesting place where I've actually been really okay to fail is to learn again, kind of like every time I see a new therapy patient, I know I'm not going to be the best fit for everybody. So two things that I've been working on significantly. One, I do a therapeutic book club now, which has been honestly life-changing for me more than I even knew. And with the small group that gets to do it, it's been pretty fantastic. So it's a way that people can sign up with a small cohort of people. We read a book, we meet four times over the course of reading that book. I provide discussion guides, handouts, and the groups are more group processing. It's very therapeutic in nature. So it's a lot of sharing across the groups, but it is also really about getting that kind of therapy guidance in the space. And then the other thing that is launching officially January 2023, but actually just opened applications for early access is my new program called Live on Purpose. So I have basically tried to take everything that I have learned in the therapy room as a speaker, in conversations like this, in life experiences, in my almost two years of, you know, trying to find even footing as a mom, which I think anyone that's been a parent or a caregiver knows is just a constant battle. And I'm only two years in and just realizing that Again, we're a system and a culture that makes support inaccessible in many ways. So a lot of, I think, the support and tools, we were even talking about this offline beforehand, even a lot of people that get into the wellness or mental health industry sometimes can be ego-driven of it becomes about the sale or it becomes about giving a Band-Aid because we're all feeling this pressure to help people not feel stress as quickly as possible. So my program basically got developed out of what do I actually see the change process looking like when I work with a client and I've worked with people from the hospitalization level down to an outpatient level? What does change actually look like and what does healing actually look like? And if we want to talk about sustainable, intentional change and living, how do we empower someone to do that? And so 
early access applications are available on my website now to get access to the program six months early for a significantly reduced rate and then providing me some feedback so I can just keep learning before I launch it publicly to everybody else. So I would say I'll send you links to both of those that you can put down in the show notes. I just think also, though, pretty accessible by by email. So people just emailing me and go to my website, go to connect, just email me. And if you're just like, hey, I just want to connect and figure out where I can best get support, then let's just find a time to talk. Because again, I think helping people match what their needs are with the right kind of support is something that I am good at. And if I can help people with that, that's something that I want to gift more of in the universe. That's beautiful. And I will absolutely link to all of that to make it really easy for the listener. Uh, For those that have not visited the website, it is wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Every episode of the show has show notes, which includes a transcription. So again, if you want to re-listen to this, if you want to read it, uh, Kira was telling me how she had read a previous episode. And I I love that. Uh, I have a, a small team of people that help me with it. And I'm so grateful that they make it easy for people who who learn best or absorb best at different periods of their day, right, by reading. So that's there for you. All the quotes, all the resources, the links, uh, anything that Kira mentioned today will be there for you. Again, it's wellevator.com in the podcast section. And type in Kira's name, K-Y-I-R-A, and you will easily find this episode. And I really hope that you do explore some of these amazing offerings. I can't wait to check out the book club. I love reading and I love processing. So I'm like, this is perfect. I'm just absolutely thrilled. And your newsletters too, as you were describing them, being kind of like blog posts, that's exactly what I love to read. So thank you for all you put out there. Thanks for everything that you shared today. Truly, it's been just a joy to hold this space with you over the past three hours now. (laughs) We've been together despite only aiming for two. So I'm sad to end this, but I'm going to, and maybe there'll be a a second episode one day in our future. (laughs) Love it. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.